This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a very special guest in Mr. Philip Waxelbaum. It's a big studio audience you got there, Evan. Huge, 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 (laughs) Phil. Pleasure to have you on. Phil is the founder and CEO of Masada Consulting, which specializes in high-performance counseling, coaching, and recruiting for the industry of financial advisors, practice owners, and firms. And you've been doing this for quite a long time. I actually saw your name on a couple of articles on a a CityWire and Advisor Hub, and somebody in my staff said, invite him on. He might be very interesting. So uh, welcome, Phil. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Give us a little bit of background. I, I noticed you were in management, and that was primarily what you did for a long period of time until you hopped over to uh, the recruitment side. Talk a little bit about your history in the business. Well, it's you're going to age me quite a bit by getting into this, but you know I'll go down that ugly path. Uh, so it all started in, in, in the middle of Newark, New Jersey, of all places, in 1981. So we're, we're completing year 42 and anxiously awaiting year 43. But I started out as a financial advisor, just like most people in our business. I was hired by what was then Bayesian Company, which became Prudential Based Securities, which through a couple of additional mechanizations is now known as Wells Fargo Advisors. So the intact, but the business card would have changed quite a few times in the process. And when did you start recruit? When did you start getting in the recruitment game? 2012? Well, I mean, recruiting is part of your life. So yeah, of course, uh, aside by politics, but you know, which is probably uh, 80% of that job. But y- 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 when did you decide, hey, I want to start recruiting? I, I, I never decided. It decided for me. So when I, I left Deutsche Bank, Alex Brown, I was going to go full-time in consulting then. That was my decision. Uh, and I was approached by uh, J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan said, gee, wouldn't it be great advertising for us, given the fact, Phil, that we're pretty confident the world is your oyster, you can go anywhere. We'd love to have you come here and be a recruiting face for J.P. Morgan. That was the legacy Bear Stearns piece for J.P. Morgan. Yep. So I did that with them for a few years to a pretty high level of success. <laughs> but it, I started the burnout on only having one story to tell and having just kind of a limited platform. So I decided to just take it full-time with Masada Consulting. So that's roughly 2010, 2011, right in there. And you've been doing it nonstop for the last 13 years? Uh, pretty much. I did it in affiliation with a, another recruiter that I have a lot of love and respect. For. And then we had different points of view about where to take it and, and what's next. He remains very successful in his endeavor. And I have become very successful as a, a, a singularly running my company. Excellent. And, and, and talk about changes in the business as of the last few years compared to when you got in the business, at least in the recruitment side of the business. Did you find yourself more recruiting towards wirehouses? And has that shifted in the last few years to more independent? Or have you seen a progression or transgression from one side to the other? Look, it, it's been a constantly moving event. And I know you want to stay in, the, in modern history, but let me take you back into past history. There was a time when everybody that you recruited, so I'm going back into the 80s and the 90s, derived 80% plus of their revenues from commissions. So either cold calling for municipal bonds or coming up with the next great stock idea and working on a commission. And it wasn't really until the 2000s that we started to make that evolution into the fee-based business. And boy, I can remember having some heart-to-hearts with advisors in the late 90s, early 2000s about the incredible pain 
that they were going through converting from commission to fee based because they they essentially assumed they had to go out of business for close to a year in order to get to the other side. Uh, and it was a tough pull. But now, if you ask an advisor wanted to work for commissions, they look at you like you have a third head. But like, what kind of lunatic would do that? There's a few, still a few lunatics out there. But it changed what advisors were after in their affiliation. That was, I think, the seminal event for the brokerage industry was the shift to fee-based business. And that really beget the IBD world, which was kind of the dark black box, and the RIA world, which everybody considered to be a complete lunatic asylum. There, there was no love there. So th- that changed things, and it has continued to evolve. What year did it start yeah. to click for you that you started to see the shift from Wirehouse primary to starting to look towards the independent and RIA side? It started out as a glacier quality event. So if you looked again back in the, the time when I started, as recently as 2010, the glacier was just barely budging, particularly coming into the financial crisis, the banking collapse. Really, very few people had a significant appetite for independence because security was everything. As we started to create some comfort that the world was going to survive, advisors started to become restless. So you had this large cadre of high-performance advisors, great businesses, great clients, who were looking for, okay, I never want to go through this again. I never want my clients to go through this again. And some of them started to look to new spaces. So the majority tried to find really secure locations, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS. But then there were the few outliners that were a bit more creative and said, no, I want to own it. I don't want someone in a boardroom making some silly decision that's going to wreck my career. And that was the beginning. And if you look at it, at the time you had half a dozen well-considered independent broker-dealers, and even those had their blemishes and issues, And as private equity money started to come into the marketplace, it really gave legs to that entire IBD space. Just a lot of amazing things have happened in the last less than 15 years. And and, and let's talk, I wanted to dive deeper into this subject because this is not a subject we've talked a lot about. Now, you've been asked to be an expert witness on some of the sides of when you've recruited an advisor to a firm. That firm and that advisor tends, dependent upon protocol, non-protocol, things along those lines, they end up going after legally, and you've been called on as an expert witness. Can you tell us a couple stories, a couple interesting cases of what those lawsuits look like, kind of the in-betweens of what that looked like? Look, the, the, the first thing I would give is, a, is, a, is a, caution, a cautionary advisory. Cautionary advisory is if you're changing firms, don't do stupid things. So, so the... The, the, the single largest reason that advisors find themselves in a position of litigation is usually because they tried to outsmart something that's actually very simple. They tried to turn checkers into chess. <laughs> and it, 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 the more complex you make anything, I'm a big fan of Occam's razor. Uh, the more complex you make the equation, the higher the probability of failure. That's usually the seminal point. But then you get some great situations where the firm... Usually it's not the firm. It's usually persons within the firm who act either stupidly or or with an aggressive adversarial position, and they do dumb things. So, you know, a great case that we represented the very high success recently 
one broker dealer was suing another along with the advisors involved with a demand for just shy of a million dollars in damages. And in the course of discovery and asking for all of the good things you always ask for, which is never write anything that you're not prepared to testify to at a later date. That includes all of the email, direct messaging, now, because it's all recorded by FINRA standards, so you can get it all back. Uh, we were able to identify that management in the firm that was seeking the $900,000 in restitution had violated any number of FINRA standards, uh, including one executive of the firm who was quoted in saying to a subordinate, I don't give a damn about FINRA. There's no way I'm going to let these guys get away with it. You can imagine as I'm testifying before a three-person FINRA panel, and we went over this one line of, of, of email, you know, I, I don't know how you recover from that. So long story short, the end point was not only did the firm suing not get the $900,000, the panel decided that they had acted so badly that they had to make just shy of $400,000 in restitution to the advisors that they had done damage to. Now that's a great result. And I would tell you result, chairman, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, the chairman of the board of the firm that was the respondent called me that evening when we got the reward to thank me, but it was great lawyering and just as the lawyers say, a great fact pattern in our favor. We've had others that are more peculiar. Practice acquisitions are perilous uh, if they're not papered properly and there's not a, a great diligence done by both the buyer and the seller. I had one of those in less than a year ago where a seller sold to an unqualified buyer and the independent broker dealer that the unqualified buyer was affiliated with signed off and every, the seller operated on the basis that, well, if the broker dealer says this person is okay, I don't think he is, but I'll go along with it. Well, the buyer ended up burning the practice to the ground. Just an incredible series of mismanagement activities. Why unqualified? Not enough time in the business. Okay. Never had run a practice before. Got it. It was kind of like, it's kind of, given my background, I picked my head up one day and say, yeah, I really like doing a car wash. Yeah, I'm going to buy a car wash and I'll start running it, not knowing anything to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it looks easy enough. You pull people in and you ask them if they want hot wax. Yeah. How hard could it be? And if you take that approach, you could fall off the cliff. That was this buyer. Okay. And he had the wherewithal and the credit available to him to borrow the money that was necessary to buy this practice, which he paid several million dollars for it, and then burnt the asset to the ground. And his response was, it's the seller's fault. They kept secrets from me. I wasn't aware of everything that I should have So the, buy, the buyer that. actually sued, well, went, 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 went to arbitration to try to gain back the money from the buyer. Mm -hmm. The seller sued the buyer. Yep. yep, yep. Now, we had some problems here where, again, we had some bad acts or, or stupid acts. Two of the employees that were under employment contract to the buyer that, that were legacy of the seller, contracted to the buyer, did some things that were really difficult to represent as not being part of the damage and made it very contrived in a very twisted path. And there was an advisor in Boston many years ago who wrote a book about the brokerage business and he called it Sex and Money. I think it had that simple title, Sex and Money. This case had all of those goodies in it. So we went down some dark paths that were unnecessary. Long story short, the buyer won and got an award for the value of the practice that 
he had burnt to the ground. Huh. Okay. The pendulum, sw- pendulum swings both ways. Yeah. Why was that? What was the smoking gun? <laughs> I think the seller had been lazy and could not well represent the diligence that had been done into the buyer because the panel wants to see that all parties have acted intelligently. Uh, this particular seller really liked the, 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 the offer and jumped on it and, and, and took it without equivocation. And then it was questionable as to whether the seller had performed what they had promised, which was to be helpful to this buyer, to make sure that the buyer transitioned the clients effectively, that the staff that had been recommended to be retained was in fact loyal as represented. So this falls in the category of greed. The seller was greedy and loved what they were getting paid. The buyer was greedy and excited to get this fabulous practice so easily with nothing but money. So those are getting interesting and they're more commonplace now. Buyer-seller disputes are becoming a significant area of contention. Just because it's happening a lot more. And I'm guessing a lot of these sellers are leaving the legacy broker-dealers and selling to smaller independent advisors. Is that what you're seeing? No, well, you really can't. So if you're an employee advisor, you can't sell your practice on a direct transaction. Well, until you come over, yeah. But there's a, but there's a way to do it. So yeah. in order to even meet IRS standards, you'd be selling something that you don't own. IRS yep. would adjudicate that as just plain ordinary income. Yep. So you have to move the book and season it, typically 12 months, and then it truly is a fungible asset, and then sell it. And the best buyer is almost invariably someone who's on the same broker-dealer platform that you already are, or at minimum with the same custodian. So you're not, I mean, technically, if you're in the wirehouse at Wells Fargo or Morgan Stanley or UBS or whatever, you can't technically sell your practice anyway. You can sign a sunset agreement and get paid and get compensated that way to to leave your legacy practice behind. Isn't that accurate? yeah, remember where the how the sunset agreement started. So the sunset agreements really started. I was in Shearson. We were the first ones to actually get one approved by FINRA. And the issue that FINRA was having is that advisors since the beginning of time had been selling their practices to their buddies and retiring and doing other things. And there was no supervision. So there was nothing in place to monitor that this was the right advisor for this set of clients. There was nothing to monitor that the compensation was being flowed through honestly and directly, that everything was above the table. So FINRA had a prohibition on it. The sales were, all of those sales were unlawful in FINRA's eyes. And only when we developed these sunset programs did FINRA sign up. And as you probably know, in most of these sunset agreements, there's some pretty onerous standards that FINRA applies up to and including that the retired advisor once that must sunset ultimately sunset their licenses and cannot have direct cannot make direct advisory recommendations to the clients who they had previously serviced yep so you know it's a messy space and lord knows in the last year we've seen all sorts of problems with sunset agreements yeah so these messes for me my opinion it's a rare occasion where it becomes the seller's best interest to retire into a sunset agreement. Most of the sunset agreements are a, have a convenience value and the ultimate value conveyed to the seller 
is much less than what the market would pay. Yeah, I guess the question is some of these advisors that have been at their firm for 10, 15, 20 years, it, it, to, for them to leave and go through that transition is a scary proposition. What would be sure. your advice to them, not only on a monetization standpoint, but on a client benefit standpoint for them to make that move? Look, all decisions should ultimately be made, should first be made with client benefit. So Reg BI applies to change in firms, probably more important than almost any other decision an advisor makes. So if the advisor can identify a firm of equal or greater quality, where the tools and resources that are appropriate to serve the clients are there, then it's a justified move. And, and, and the, the best way to avoid issues is planning ahead. So I would definitely be looking at this a year, two years, three years in advance and evolving a legacy plan rather than I can't take it anymore afternoon decision to sell. It shouldn't be an emotional decision. This is a business. And when we look at the business of what, where we are, when I came into the business, there wasn't a branch of 30 advisors. There were no million dollar advisors, none. It was, you never met a million dollar advisor. I remember early hero meetings where we would put a little gold star on the, on their name tag to identify that this is someone who had crashed the barrier. But, you know, we used to call it the $500,000 hump. No, no one ever got past that. Yeah. Now, when we've got somebody talking about selling their practice, if the UBS claims that their average advisor does 1.7 million. I take that number with a slightly grain of salt. Yeah. The difference between means and medians. But that said, I think it's reasonable that as we look at the wirehouse universe, that the average advisor, certainly on a mean, is at 1.2 million. That practice in the marketplace is a $3 million plus asset. You can't be, would, would you be flippant about any other $3 million decision in your life? No. And that's, it's funny when you talk to these advisors, I think there's a couple things. There's a fear that's been, you know, placed in them by wherever they are that if they left and they tried to sell their practice and move it, number one, they would not be able to take nearly enough assets to recover from what they would get on the sunset. Two, going and running a business is a whole different animal. And are your clients going to adapt to that? You're a lot easier just sticking. I would say fear is probably the number one thing driving those advisors from making that move. Would you agree? Yes, but let's talk a little bit about the truths. So there are programs offered by some of the, the major independent broker dealers where you can go independent functionally turnkey. So LPL uh, has a great program called SWS. They survey for the office space. They help you lease the office space. They install all of your electronics. They buy all of your electronics. They help you pick out the furniture. They help you pick out the pictures for the wall. You could take it down to how much backstock you need of rolls of toilet paper to open for the first day. Kestra has a similar program. And most of the other independent broker dealers, while they don't have a formalized program like those, also have those capacities and will apply them. So a lot of advisors get spooked out of the concept for a lot of the wrong reasons. It's not tough stuff. Uh, I think it's fear that's been driven into them. I, and, I, and I, the I in the last three years, I've negotiated at least a dozen leases in behalf of advisors. So it's kind of old. It's kind. Of, it's kind of like nothing new for me. But it's a throwback to my knowledge base from being uh, on the employee side, where I was leasing it in behalf of the firm. But and it's and not, I, I don't. I don't know if you'd concur with me when I say this, but I mean, realistically, I, I know LPL offers these turnkeys, and these turnkeys are there. 
if they can get over the hump of the fact that, yeah, the first three to six months is going to be a little bit more difficult. I, I wouldn't even say three to six months. I would say the first couple months before, you, when you have to sign your lease, pick out your furniture. But once you're done, your lease is on automatic pay payment. Your phone is. I mean, the operations of the business, running the business is actually quite simple. The tough part is just the fear of getting over the fact that you're signing a lease and that you're personally guaranteeing that lease and that you're yeah. you know, having to put yes. that $25,000, $30,000 down on furniture and equipment. Yeah, is it that scary? What conviction do you have in your ability to bring your clients? If your conviction mm -hmm. is that I, I can bring 70 to 80 as my minimum, or then do the math. Does the math make sense? And if it does, don't be afraid, jump in. Look, we were teasing on the concept of averages a second ago. The numbers are the numbers, and Cerulli has backed this up, and McClagan has backed this up, and all of the firm's internal execution. Typical independent advisor who goes from independent dealer to other independent dealer, I'm going to start with them. They typically move 100% plus of their assets. They almost never leave less than, less than 100. We take a step back, which would be wirehouse to wirehouse. Wirehouse experience is 85 to 90%. So I don't care if you leave in Merrill or Morgan or UBS or Wells, it doesn't matter. Unless you really just darnly lazy in your attempt, a worst case scenario is in the 80% range. That's a failure. Then you get to the more hybrid space, which is what we're talking about, the breakaway advisor who breaks away from an employee channel to go independent. If they go to an independent broker dealer, because the statistics are a lot more opaque as to whether if they jump to an RIA directly, but of those that go to independent broker deals where we have good statistics, we know that they too bring 80% plus. So I've got a saying that I like to use when I kind of distilled all the numbers down and I know exactly where I'm, I am, is you can't get hurt falling out of a basement window. Right? Most transitions are loyalty driven and the loyalty is to the advisor. Now, if you're leaving a bank channel and you inherited a bunch of accounts because the teller window number three has been feeding your clients, well, you got another issue. You, you may move half or less, but if you've built a book from your own blood, sweat, and tears over a period of pretty extended, five years to 50, you're moving that book. Phil, give me a 60-second call to arms of the advisors out there that are on the fence or haven't been taking your calls, why they, why they need to, and this is your opportunity to actually get them to listen to you for 60 seconds. Why take the call and why look? All right. So I'm, I'm, first, I'm going to make a, a recruiting industry shameless plug. Then I'll make a personal shameless plug. One of my competitors hammers that every advisor should have a plan B. Right? Now, plan B should take two formats. I believe that every advisor should have a set of their production runs and asset runs uh, hidden under the bed in their spare bedroom. And it, they should refresh it regularly because you just never know what could happen on Tuesday. But... You should also make friends, see what the resources are at other firms, not because you're going to move, but because if you ever did, it makes it a short list much more quickly. The due diligence will be more elegant and, and you'll be more informed. Most movement is a function of getting smarter. And one of the really good things that's happened in the business over the last decade is there was a time when you call an advisor to recruit them. I'm going back to my employee channel side of the, the, of the fence. But you talk to them about moving, and they would tell you, I know every manager in town. I don't need you. I could do this myself. I got this. Well, what they don't know is they don't know what the deals were that were done at that other firm. 
in detail. They don't know if their offer that they're getting is really value. They, they don't know if they could have negotiated for that second sales assistant. They'll try, but sometimes recruiters have the lever. And I think that whole concept of always having a plan B is kind of like continuing education. Call it CE for advisors. Every big business in America puts out RFPs every year for whatever is their most frequently used commodity. Every big business CFO looks to see what multiple is being assigned to my competitors and why, and how do I move the needle? But you can only do that if you spend a little bit of time getting in traffic. Now, for me personally, why do I think we create a great value added? Well, I, I mean, it's a short word, it's me. I, I, the, there are very few things, I, I haven't seen everything, but I've damn near seen everything. And I'm now at a cycle in, in the career where I've seen most things three times, not just twice. So it gives me some guidance of knowing what can be done to succeed and what can be is done to almost certain fit. And I think that changes perspective. Um, a lot of great recruiters out there, some really wonderful people that I have a lot of respect for, but there are an awful lot of people who are amateurs. And, and one of the things that I, I'm, I'm always kind of cautious about saying out loud, but I'm going to say it, uh, and this is about as public a forum as I'm going to get, so I'm going to use it. Everybody has to come into the business somehow. My first day as a broker, I, we would get call-ins. You used to have man of the day where you someone showed up or someone called in. Typically back then, someone would call in for a quote because I'm I'm a pre-internet broker. You wanted to find out what a price something was selling. By the way, also pre-CNBC and pre-FNN, if you wanted a quote on something in real time, you had to call a broker firm. And they gave you the quote. I remember the first time I got a call in, I panicked. And, and gave it to, to my sales assistant because I had no idea what to do to get this guy a quote. I was totally lost. There are people who are coming into the recruiting business who are that same guy. They have no idea what they're doing yet. And I respect them and I hope they succeed. And some of them are very bright and talented and nice people. But I'm not trusting my life's work to someone who started last Tuesday. The same way you wouldn't expect a client to take their, the accumulation of assets of their lifetime and hand it over to a freshly minted advisor straight back from the frame. Well, I, the, I, I think that's a ringing endorsement. If they want to get a hold of you, Phil, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me is I'll give you my cell number. I'm going to get right down there. Go for three, it. 272 310-6761. Easy peasy. And they can reach you on LinkedIn as well. And then your website is? The website is masadaconsult.com. But I would tell you, we've taken it down for renovation. And it's going to be back up for the first of the new year in a very exciting new format. So don't go to the website for now because you're going to get a under construction sign. Excellent. All okay. right. So go to his LinkedIn page for now if you want to message him. And if not, give him a call. I look forward to it. Excellent. Phil, thank you so much for being on. Hope everybody enjoyed today's podcast. A lot of interesting information, specifically on the expert witnessing thing. And hope everybody enjoyed today's show. Thank you so much. Thank you.